Well, today uh, we are beginning a new series on the book of Acts. The book of Acts. It's a provocative and often surprising and exciting book to read. I encourage you to read it and reread it as we embark on this journey together. There's no shortage of action. Right? The book is pulsating with action. You have miracles, preaching, speeches, theological disputes, public confrontations, social convulsions, riots. If you like riots, this is the book for you. Magicians, demons, political authorities is fantastic. It is a unique glimpse into what we might call ground zero of the Christian church. Or at least ground zero of the church in its new covenant form. Or maybe even better, ground zero of the promised end time restoration of Israel and the gathering of the nations. Foreseen by the prophets. All that's foreseen by the prophets begins to explode and to unfold in the book of Acts. Now, it's easy to misuse the book to assume, and Presbyterians have traditionally been tuned into this kind of thing, to assume, for instance, that everything today should look just like it did back then. You know, why can't we be like the church was in the book of Acts? Well, there are reasons why it's not the same. But we want to be careful not to make the opposite error and assume nothing today is like it was in the book of Acts. I think as we read the book, we will find that the Lord will bless us and encourage us and challenge us with it. So I pray, and I ask you to pray, that the Spirit right, will give us a fresh vision of the life and the mission of the community of disciples, the followers of the way, as Acts calls us. So this morning we'll begin that. Um, from Acts chapter 1, and I'll make three points here. They're on the outline in your bulletin. The kingdom, the commission, the ascension. So first, first the kingdom. Our author is, of course, Luke, right? the writer of the third gospel. Between his gospel and the book of Acts, Luke writes more of the New Testament than Paul does. Surprising little fact I learned. Luke writes more of the New Testament than Paul does. Both Luke's gospel and the book of Acts are addressed to one Theophilus. We don't know who he was, but we learn that he had received some Christian instruction. And Luke writes, Luke researches. He says, you know, he, he, he researches, he, talk, he consults all these eyewitness sources. Right? He compiles everything in an orderly manner so that Theophilus might have a more exact precise knowledge of the faith. That's why he writes Luke-Acts. So, in verse 1, Luke speaks of his former book, in which he wrote of all that Jesus began, began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. That former book is the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, which is being referred to. Acts, then, is the sequel to the Gospel, so it's a two-volume work. 
Notice this. Jesus, he says, began doing and teaching during his earthly life. But the book of Acts, then, is what Jesus continues to do and teach after his ascension. Right? Thus, it has been said that the Acts of the Apostles could be better called the Acts of the Ascended Christ. Right? Or even better, the Acts of the Ascended Christ through the Holy Spirit. Or even better, the Acts of the Ascended Christ through the Holy Spirit by the hands of his chosen Apostles. Or even better, this is hard to fit on the top of a Bible, though, the acts of the ascended Christ by the Holy Spirit through the hands of his apostles and his church. The point is, Jesus began to do and teach, right? You, you think of the historical life of Jesus, all the doing and teaching, the miracles, the confrontations, the, the sermons, right, the engagement, all of that concrete, visible stuff the healings, the exorcisms. And now he's ascended. And he's no longer visible to us, but he's still active and acting and doing and teaching. That's one of the grand points of the book of Acts. Though Jesus has gone away, it is to your advantage that he's gone away. He's still doing and teaching, right? He's alive. He's near. He continues to act just as he was when he was in the flesh. But there was, Luke tells us, a 40-day period right between the resurrection and the ascension. And during this period of time, Jesus instructed the apostles, the apostles whom he had handpicked and chosen, through the Spirit. And he presented himself alive, Luke says, with many convincing proofs. You can imagine how compelling these proofs would be. And then it says this. He appeared to them and he spoke of the kingdom of God. Can you imagine a 40-day period of impromptu seminars from the risen Jesus on the kingdom of God? Right? That should take the theme of the kingdom of God and put it right on top of all the things you think are important in life. Right, because the theme of Jesus' earthly preaching, the whole central matter of it, the whole, what is his first sentence? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what he preaches. He preaches the kingdom. Now he's raised from the dead and appearing to his apostles. And in the 40 days, what does he talk about? The kingdom of God. That's what he wants to speak to them about. That's a lot of material. I mean, even if he's only appearing every couple of days. This is the central theme he wants to talk about as he appears as risen. And it's highlighted for us right here at the beginning of the book of Acts. Forty days he spoke to them. And what's the end of the book of Acts? If you flip to the end, you will find Paul in Rome. And the text tells us right near the very end of the last chapter, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. So it brackets the whole book, this theme. So let me say a few words about it, just to open. Now, the kingdom of God. What, of course, God has always been king of all. Right? We saw that in the, in the psalm we just sang, Psalm 47, from which our call to worship was taken. 
The Lord has always reigned over all, over all the nations, over all the ends of the earth, especially king over Israel. So what is new then about Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God? Well, we can't do anything exhaustive. I mean, after all, Jesus took 40 days on this. But we can say a couple of things that are important. But I think it's important to speak of, of realm and rule. The kingdom is a realm. It's a space, if you will, over which God reigns. And in this sense, he has and he always does reign over all. But the kingdom can also be spoken of as a realm or a place where one's rule is accepted and embraced. And that's what Jesus has in view. That's what's in view here. The kingdom of God is the sphere where the spirit has brought new life. That's what Jesus means. The kingdom of God is the sphere where the spirit has brought new life. It's not a kingdom of this world. It doesn't come with grand signs to be observed, Jesus says. Paul speaks of it. And Paul says, here's the kingdom of God. It is righteousness, peace, and joy. Where? Where is it? It's in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In this sense, in this sense, the kingdom is not everywhere. But the kingdom is where the redeemed are. The kingdom is in Christ. It's where Jesus is accepted as Lord and where he reigns. This is why John can say, unless you are born again, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God. Calvin, for example, says that the beginning of the kingdom is regeneration, being born again, and the end of the kingdom is its fulfillment in our blessed immortality, in the consummation. It is, Calvin says, a heavenly, spiritual kingdom perfected when we participate in the coming glory of God, which has appeared in Jesus, and that's why Jesus announces this. The kingdom of God is at hand. So the kingdom of God is not a set of ideas, although there are ideas entailed. The kingdom of God is the life of the Spirit, which is the life of the age to come, which is resurrection life, breaking into the life of the chosen people of God here and now. And for this reason, right, Acts shows us this wonderfully, by the way. Kingdom and church belong together. The life of the age to come for the people of the age to come. And they cannot be separated. And that's why, as you read the book of Acts, you'll see that as the apostles proclaim, and the church in general, proclaim the kingdom of God, what they do is they plant churches, and they nourish churches, and they strengthen churches. The book of Acts should make us want to plant not just the church in Ulster County, but other churches. One thing the book of Acts makes you want to do is move. (laughs) It's a horizontal book that way. It's moving out. So the kingdom of God, then, is the place where Jesus' redemptive resurrection life is. That's why our Westminster Confession of Faith says this, that the visible church is the kingdom of God. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, 
gives the keys to the church leaders, right? He gives the keys to those in authority in the church. What keys does he give them? He doesn't give them the keys to the church. He gives them the keys to the kingdom because the visible church is the kingdom of God. Because admission into the church is admission into the kingdom because exclusion from the church is exclusion from the kingdom. This is the kingdom of God in your midst. All of this All of this, and much, much, much more, we can be sure, Jesus instructed his apostles on during the 40 days. And and in one of these post-resurrection appearances, brings us to verse 4, and to our second point, the commission. The commission. The text says, on one occasion he was staying with them, or perhaps eating with them. He gave them this command, do not depart from Jerusalem. But wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me. What is the gift that the Father has promised? Of course, I think we all know it's the Holy Spirit, right? After the ascension, ten days later comes Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. It's 40 plus 10. It's 50 days after the Passover. So there is a gift from the Father that the ascended Christ sends to the church from which we all drink. And this gift is promised in the prophets. This is a key point to get. It's it's big in Acts. Right? If you look in the books of Isaiah and Joel, right? Remember, you're going to see in chapter 2, Peter quotes from the book of Joel at Pentecost. And Ezekiel, you will see that there is this promise That in the end time, in the latter days, when God restores Israel, when he heals the nations, right? he's going to pour the Spirit out in abundance, a profusion of the Spirit. And that gift of the Spirit is a sign that the end is upon us. So there's there's a gift promised in the prophets of the Spirit. And thus, at the end of his life, five times in John's Gospel in the upper room, in that discourse there, Jesus speaks of the coming of the Spirit from the Father. I will ascend, and I will send you the promise of the Father. Just as an aside, notice the the radiant Trinitarian structure of our faith. The ascended Son sends the Spirit from the Father. The ascended Son sends the Spirit from the Father. And as you get close to Jesus' ministry, right, as he breaks on the scene, John the Baptist speaks of one who will come after him who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. And notice this in Acts chapter 1. I think this might be surprising if you haven't read Acts in a while. In verse 5 of chapter 1, Jesus reminds them of John the Baptist in the book of Acts. And he says, John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He connects his own baptism at the hands of John with the coming gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. And Lord willing, I hope to come back to that in subsequent weeks in this series. So here's his first piece of instruction to the apostles. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift of the Spirit. And then the text proceeds to the last conversation that Jesus had with the disciples. Verse 6. They gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, 
Are you at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? Calvin says this about this question. He says, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. Now, to be honest with you, I think that's probably too harsh. Um, I mean, it does appear that the disciples have misconstrued the kingdom somewhat as a purely political, national, earthly kingdom. Perhaps they want an imminent theocracy where Israel is exalted over the nations and liberated from Rome. Probably one where they, in which they are the chief executives, right? Remember, remember the mother of James and John. She wants her sons to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. So all of that's probably in play here. Yet, I do want to say this. It must be said, right, that the coming of the kingdom is about the restoration of Israel and the nations, as we will see throughout the rest of the book. So there's a kernel of truth in the, in the disciples' questions here. You can understand how they might ask it. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? At least they're on the theme of the kingdom. Right? He's talking to them about the kingdom. You would expect them to ask a question sort of like this. So I think we should cut them a little slack. But in any case, Jesus does kind of rebuke them, and he focuses on the question of timing. He starts with this. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by its own authority, his own authority. It's not for you to know. It's kind of a rebuke to our often ungodly curiosity or our presumption or our, we tend to want to intrude into things God has not revealed. They're hidden. Right? It's interesting that these disciples, they don't have any questions about the text of the law or the prophets or the covenant. It's just, Lord, when are we going to have power again? When's the glory coming? And so after Jesus says, look, it's not for you to know, he says, but, but, you shall receive power. You want power? You want to talk about power? You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Right? The but indicates a contrast to their question. You will get power, but it will be of a different kind than you're thinking of. You will receive power. Even that's paradoxical, right? Like, if you're receiving power, and you're in a receptive posture to power, that means power is never a personal property that we have. It's never a possession. The church never has power that way. The church receives power. She's passive and receptive. She receives the power of the Spirit, who we will see turns out to be the power of Love and the power of witness and the power of faithfulness unto death. The power of a different sort of kingdom. Christ himself, Christ himself, it was necessary for him in his humanity to be anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. And the apostles too, we will see, need to be anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. This underwrites the apostolic mission, and as we'll see, what it also underwrites in the book of Acts is the ability to suffer. As our Lord was anointed and suffered, so the apostles are anointed for mission, and they suffer. Now, there are a lot of enterprises, right, which can do just fine with human moral effort and discipline. 
But the calling of the church is not one of them. Right? She collapses without this gift, without what the hymn calls this best of all donations that God can give or man implore. I've always loved that line about the Spirit. The Spirit is the best of all donations that God can give. Why is the Spirit the best gift that God can give? Because the Spirit is God. The Spirit is the best gift that God can give. It is the best gift you can ask for. That's why in Luke's Gospel, a little bit later in Luke's Gospel, when Jesus tells the disciples to ask and to seek and to knock, and the Father will give you what you you seek, in Luke's Gospel he says, what that means is that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. In John's Gospel, the risen Christ breathes on the disciples, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Right? And there, in that context, he says, as the Father has sent me, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. In other words, the Spirit is given for mission, for sending. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So what's Jesus saying to the disciples here? He's saying, look, stop worrying about the timing of the kingdom and when Israel is going to be restored. You have work to do, Jesus says. In fact, you have a worldwide mission. You will be my witnesses, he says, not only in Jerusalem, but then in all Judea and in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Right? If you look at the suffering servant in Isaiah, the servant restores Israel and he brings the covenant to the ends of the earth. To the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. From Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Israel, then the nations. Right? That's the outline of the rest of the book, right? Famously, Acts 1.8, that's the outline of the book. We'll have more to say about that as well. But right here, I want to pause again. Just so we don't get too far ahead of ourselves. I do want to remind us that Jesus is talking here to the apostles. All of the yous in this text, you will be baptized. It is not for you to know. You will receive power. You shall be my witnesses. All of the yous are directed to the apostles, not to us. To the apostles. And the apostles are once for all foundational, unique witnesses to Christ's resurrection. You and I are not. Right? The apostles are once for all unique eyewitness resurrection of Christ with their very eyes. They testified to that. There are, in this sense, there are no apostles today. Trying to have apostles today is like trying to relay the foundation of a building. Right? You have a building. The church that we're in is the superstructure on top of that apostolic foundation. If you thought there were apostles today, that'd be like knocking out the eighth floor and laying another foundation there. It's not how that works. So they are receiving a commission here. Yes, it's true. You're thinking, don't we have a commission? Yes, we do. I'm not denying that. But it's important to see that Acts is the Acts of Christ through his apostles. So why am I belaboring this? Well, I want you to see the importance of Acts because of this laying of this foundation. In taking the gospel... From Jerusalem to Rome, they complete their foundational mission, their unrepeatable mission. And here, 
we kind of have to think theologically and not geographically. The gospel moving from Jew to Gentile makes it ethnically universal. From Israel and beyond is, in a foundational way, the whole world, the ends of the earth. The Bible talks this way. So let's say you're in a house that has two rooms in it, and you're standing in one room. And you walk over into the other room. And then you say to someone, I've been in the whole house. Right? Well, yes, you have, but you haven't been in the whole house. You've been in a couple of spots in both rooms. That's sort of the way the New Testament thinks. Israel and then outside Israel. Together, that means the whole world. And you can speak of that as the whole world. So, for example, in Colossians 1, Paul says the gospel's bearing fruit in the whole world. He means Israel and beyond. He says the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. He says he has fully proclaimed the gospel to all the Gentiles. So here the word world means a representative sampling of the world. The nations means Gentiles or some subset of the nations. The ends of the earth mean Israel and nations outside Israel. All of this to simply say there's a unique apostolic commission and they did, they completed, they finished what they were commissioned to do. They took the gospel from Israel to Rome, which is the same as taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. They laid the foundation upon which we build even in the Great Commission. So, they are called to worldwide witness. By the proclamation of the word, in the power of the spirit, and also, as we will see, through miraculous signs which confirm their apostleship and the divine authority of the gospel. And they were successful in their commission. They completed their commission. That's the commission. Final point, the ascension. Verse 9. Very briefly, matter-of-factly, Luke records the ascension. He repeatedly in these verses like refers to the disciples' eyes, like to looking and seeing. He's, remember, he was careful to consult eyewitnesses. He was careful to investigate everything carefully. And his whole report of the ascension, I mean, think of the ascension, right? It's a fairly spectacular, unique event. But Luke reports it in an almost journalistic way, very understated. He was lifted up before their very eyes, and a cloud took him from their sight. Right? Now, this cloud's not a rain cloud. It's the portable throne of God. It's a miniature replica of the highest heavens where God is worshipped by the heavenly hosts. It's the immediate visible presence of Yahweh. This is the cloud which followed Israel in the wilderness. This is the Shekinah glory which dwelt in the most holy place. This is the same cloud that overshadowed Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? It indicates his final departure. For he must enter into his heavenly Sabbath rest. And the disciples are looking intently at the sky when all this transpires. The Lord's departing and these two men dressed in white, these two angels appear. Again, if we're thinking here Theologically, it's not surprising that angels show up here. They attended his birth, right? 
They strengthened him in the wilderness. They ministered to him in Gethsemane. They proclaimed his resurrection to the women at the tomb. In fact, if you see the cloud in the Bible, you should think angels. When Ezekiel is lifted up into this cloud and he sees the glory of the Lord inside the cloud, what does he see? He sees that the thing is thronging with angelic hosts. So we should expect them here. And they speak to the disciples. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? Bodily, Jesus is now absent. The time of sight with respect to Christ is over. The era of faith has begun. Paul says we no longer know even Christ according to the flesh. This same Jesus, they say, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. That's the key here, in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. So the ascension is visible bodily, attended by God's glory cloud and angelic hosts, and so shall the second coming of Christ be. Visible, bodily, glorious with all the saints. The ascension assures us not only that Jesus is ascended and enthroned as king over all, it most certainly tells us that, but it also assures us of the second coming. This same Jesus, in this same way, who you have seen go, shall return. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that once you establish this, the church cannot be a collection of stargazers. Right? She has a mission to undertake. Right? We don't sit around gazing into the heavens. She has a mission to undertake in the power of the Spirit. Besides right, the already mentioned craving to know the times and the seasons, there are two additional errors that I think are corrected by this text or rebuked by the text. The first is this lust for earthly power. And the second is gazing longingly into the sky. Or to put it differently, the two errors are pious retreat from the world. That's a corruption of the gospel. Or a, a kind of utopian activism like where it's all cultural engagement all the time. Both of these things are deep distortions of the balance that a text like this gives us. So I would summarize it like this. The ascension makes us heavenly-minded people with an earthly mission. Christ has ascended, but he's also sending the Spirit to propel you out. It makes us heavenly-minded people with an earthly mission. People who long for the second coming and know how that longing should express itself in the interim between the ascension and the coming of the Lord. Right? The apostles are the example of this. They finished their tasks. They laid the foundation from Jerusalem to Rome. So we now engage in the Great Commission until the end of the age, until this same Jesus comes again in glory to consummate his kingdom. Leslie Newbegin, some of you may have heard of him. Newbegin was a pretty well-known 20th century Christian thinker, theologian. He was an Anglican bishop, and he was a missionary, a pioneering missionary to India. And he writes this. He says, the church is the pilgrim people of God. It is on the move. Remember I said Acts is movement. It's on the move, he says, hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all men to be reconciled to God and 
hastening to the end of time to meet its Lord. It cannot be understood rightly, he says, except in a perspective that is at once missionary and, you knew this had to happen, eschatological. He said eschatological, not me. Right? So this is Newbegin. You can't understand the church without both of these perspectives. The church is hastening to the ends of the earth, hastening to the end of the world. It is a missionary eschatological society, he says. And there's no better way to end than that. The ascended Jesus makes us a heavenly, empowered people. Right? And through the coming of the Spirit, a missional people whose passion is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. So the book of Acts is kind of has a resetting function right, for us. It resets us. Why are we here? What are we doing in this interim time? It kind of clears the fog off our glasses. The times and the seasons will be obscure and dark. People always want to figure out what God's doing. I'm like, this is what he's doing right here. Oh, I know, but uh, Russia's doing this and they're doing that. Yeah, you don't know. Neither do I. Neither does anybody. You don't know. The times and the seasons are going to be obscure and they're going to be dark, but our duty is clear. Right? Like the apostles. Not as the apostles, but like the apostles. By the Spirit's power... We, too, are called to bear witness to the ascended and the enthroned Christ, who is king over all, whose kingdom has now come, who has brought the latter days, the one who continues to act in the life of the church and in the life of Westminster Church, now and into the future. Amen.